Amen. So just before the children are dismissed to go to their classes, I had an announcement I wanted to make. Uh, you, you probably, this thing, there you go. Um, if you've been around for a while, uh, what our, what, the way we do things here in some, some ways is a little bit different uh, than in other churches. One of the ways that is, is uh, whereas if you have background in, in church experience, many times the senior pastor uh, preaches maybe 45 to 48 to even 50 times a year in the church you, because that's his job. He's the preaching pastor and that's what he's supposed to do. Uh, and we really have kind of from the very beginning said we didn't want to do it that way. One of the reasons is, is because it's very dangerous to build a church on one personality. Now, I don't have a big enough personality to really build the church upon, so it's not, a big, not, a, not that big of a danger. Uh, the other the other reason is um, we just believe that the that the, the you know the Holy Spirit has given gifts to you know men not just man and so we really want to be a place where we, we are you know we are encouraging the development of the gifts even of preaching among people now see if if we exist that the church just exists for us then what we would do is we'd put the most talented people up in front all the time and just make it as great as we possibly could for our enjoyment. But if we really believe, as we do, that the church doesn't exist for us, it exists for our city, it exists for those who are not yet a part of us, it exists for, and we have a mission, and part of that mission is to raise up um, workers for church planting all over the county. If that's the case, then the metaphor that I would want you to think about is the church has to really be a laboratory. The church really has to be a laboratory where everybody is, is figuring out, you know, experimenting and figuring out what it is that, that God has given them and gifted them to do. And, and that includes even the gifts of preaching. And so we regularly are having young guys like Justin lead worship and preach. And, and this morning, my friend Scott Schaublum is going to come and preach. Now, I've told people that this week, hey, Scott's preaching. I'm so excited. And they kind of look at me like, Scott, who, who is that? And then I say, Max's dad. And everybody says, oh, Max's dad, so everybody knows Max, is what I learned. So Max's dad is coming to preach to us this morning. Scott is a good friend. He lives in Bartow with his family. Uh, they, they, he grew up there and then moved back there a few years ago, started attending worship with us. Uh, we've become good friends with their family. We love him. But uh, he, he's worked for Youth for Christ as an area director for many years, and he has experience in preaching and teaching. And so as a birthday present to me this morning, he agreed to, to do that for us. And so we're excited to have Scott with us. So welcome him and uh, come and talk to him after he's done this morning. You are, we want, churches make pastors great. Churches make preachers. How do you learn to preach? if you don't preach and practice. And so thank you for your generosity in being a church that is committed to making guys great preachers. I really am grateful for that. Uh, so welcome him this morning as he comes in just a minute. Our scripture this morning comes from Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 62. And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those around were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temples and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour, the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him 
into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also is with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is God's word. We parachute this morning into a passage that is ripe with dramatic tension. If you're a movie buff, it's not hard to emotionally go to the place where you can see these things play out. On the heels of Drew's sermon last week, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is in agony, wrestling with the reality of what he's about to face. And this, uh, this overwhelming weight and grief and tension sweeps in to where it's almost palpable. You could cut it with a knife. You know, I, I, I grew up in Polk County. I'm, you know, I'm, I get it honest. It's, it's, I can't run from the accent. It's just kind of there. When I was 12 years old, maybe the greatest moment of my life happened. As a kid, I, I grew up addicted to stories. I just, I'm fascinated by them. I love the, 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 the narrative that, that sweeps uh, across the page and captures your heart and your attention and your emotion. And for me, and maybe it's different for you, but for me, no place was that drama captured more intensely than the world of professional wrestling. And in fact, that's how my mother got me to go to church on Sunday. Because Sunday, if, you know, when I was a kid, when Sunday you would rush home and, the, and afterwards you could, you could sit on the couch and that was about the only time she could keep us indoors was we would flip on professional wrestling. And I love it because it's so easy to tell who the good guys and the bad guys are, right? When I was 12 years old, my father came home from work one day and he said, boys, you're not going to believe it. But I got us five tickets to go see the WWF live at the Lakeland Center. See, this was important to him because the main event that night was Dusty Rhodes, the you know, American dream, versus the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. Now, if you're, if you're a wrestling fan, you know this is a big deal. And so he gets uh, my, I've got two younger brothers, myself and a friend of his. We load up in, the, in our, our 19, 
gosh, what was it? You know, 1987 Chevy Astro minivan, and we head to the Lakeland Center. Of course, the undercard is fine. They're wrestling. They're going around, and, and the main event comes. And, of course, if, I don't man, if you've been there, it's oh, lights go down, music comes up, and out in all of his 360 pounds of glory walks the American dream Dusty Rhodes. And he comes into the ring, he slides in, he's back and forth off the ring ropes. And my father is just overjoyed. This is not a man prone to great emotional displays, but he is, I mean, in it. And of course, the lights go down again, and up comes the music for the heel. It's what they call the bad guy in wrestling. The heel comes out. And this is played by the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. And he walks down in this, in this kind of cut-out singlet that looks like a, like a suit. And behind him walks perhaps one of the largest men I've ever seen. It was his bodyguard called Virgil. You know, Virgil's probably 240 pounds of just cock diesel, you know, muscles on top of muscles. Very intimidating fellow. So the match starts, they're running around, and they're wrestling, and they're throwing, and my father is just, you ever seen someone just kind of bounce with anticipation? I do that some, and I think that's where I got it, but he's, I mean, he's, he's bouncing with anticipation, and as always happens, Dusty Rhodes gets thrown out of the ring right in front of us. I mean, it's big, huge man. We've got second row seats. Lands right in front. It's kind of like being in a splash zone at SeaWorld. You know, just sweat, just... He's right in front of us. And, and of course, then the referee gets in onto Million Dollar Man and he's arguing back and forth. But this is all a ploy, you see. It's all a ploy. Because all he's doing is distracting the referee so that Virgil can sneak around right in front of us. And while the referee's attention is distracted, what's he doing? He's working over Dusty Rhodes right in front of us. And my father comes unglued. And he says to me, Words I will never forget to this day. Look out for your brothers. <laughs> he reaches over into my lap and takes the camera that we brought. He sneaks past the people in the front row, right in front of the metal grate, where Dusty is getting his head punched in by this big dude named Virgil. And my father looks left, and he looks right, and he sucker punches old Virgil <laughs> right in the kidneys. You should have seen the look on that man's face when he got hit for real. <laughs> you're not allowed to do that, by the way. It, you're not allowed to do that. And so really, before they miss a beat, the yellow security guards are down on, upon him, and they carry him off to the top. You know, when we hit Virgil, everyone, yeah! We, the arena, 20,000 people stand and scream because the bad guy got what he deserved. <laughs> My dad bribed the security guard 30 bucks to come down and get us, and we had to leave. So I don't actually know who won the match. But it really doesn't matter because I got a great story out of it. Now, why do I, why do I tell you that? Well, one, it's a really funny story, but... But beyond that, I think it's instructive. I think it's instructive in this regard. 
See, the, the human heart is hardwired for justice. The human heart longs to see evil get what it deserves and for good to triumph, right? I mean, think of the stories that captivate our heart and attention. You know, whether it's something like Rudy, you know, the gutsy little kid never gets his shot until the one day and the last day of the season he sweeps in, saves the day. Or it's, maybe it's Lord of the Rings. Two halflings are entrusted with a fate certain to end in doom and overcome at the end. Maybe it's Les Mis. Whatever it is, the stories that we tell underscore this truth that we're hardwired for justice. We want to know that at the end of the day, everything will be all right and evil will be destroyed. And that's why when we come to a passage like we find in Luke 22, it leaves us a little cold, doesn't it? I mean, if we can just be honest for a moment, this doesn't feel like the way it's supposed to be. What is going on here? Just by way of outline this morning, I've given us three things to hopefully be able to hang our hat on. And and really, they're just the honest expression of my own emotions as I've tried to wrestle with this passage. So as we kind of make our way through it, it, here's what we'll hold on to. It's just this immense picture of darkness, this immense understanding of a cosmic injustice that seems to be playing out. And then the reality of a love that you and I can hardly comprehend. That's where I want us to go this morning. And I I promise you, if we walk through this difficult passage, if we walk through the betrayal and the shame that we find here, on the other side, we will see something beautiful. So let's go there. This, this picture, as I've mentioned, is incredibly dark. It's dark spiritually. It's dark literally. It's the middle of the night. And Jesus has finished uh, this prayer. He's gathered his disciples. They're standing in the garden. And across the Kidron Valley, you hear a faint crackling of fire, the twinkling of lights as a mob prepares to make their way to arrest Jesus. And before the night is over, two of Jesus' friends, men who shared meals with him, who walked the roads with him, who served alongside him, would both reject and deny him. You know, few things sting as much as rejection, right? I mean, if... If you're anything like me, I have orchestrated my entire life to avoid (laughs) rejection. I I mean, I I turn into a flop sweat even just thinking of the word because I can't help but be drawn to awkward dance invitations in high school. You want to go to the prom with me? No. (laughs) Well, thanks anyway. Maybe it's painful memories of a love that's unrequited from a parent. Whatever your go-to is, 
when you hear that word rejection, it stings. It hurts intensely. But here's what's so curious to me about what's going on in Luke 22, 47 to 62. See, Jesus, Jesus doesn't steer out of rejection the way that I would. I mean, I, I've got like a finely tuned radar that helps me avoid anything that might hint or smell like rejection. He doesn't avoid it. He steers into it. Think about who we're talking about here. This is the king. This is the cosmic Christ that Paul talks about in Colossians 2. This is the one who, through whom and by whom, everything that is was made and is held together. This is the one who knows everything, controls everything, and has the authority to accomplish what his will is. So do you not think that when he's selecting disciples three years ago, he might not have been able to make a better or different choice? He could have, but he chose this moment. And that's what I want you to see, guys. He chose this moment. In fact, while I orchestrate everything in my life to avoid rejection, every conversation, every action, every appointment was designed to be standing in that garden on that evening and receiving that kiss. It's by design. He steps into the pain. He steps into the awkwardness. He steps into the, to the chaos and the confusion. And so it begs the question, why? Why would you do this? Why would anybody in their right mind desire something like this to happen? I think it's part of what, what Aslan and, and the Lion, the Witch of the Wardrobe refers to as the deep magic. This is the deep magic of the gospel. See, the truth is Jesus has to go down, and he's got to go down hard the way Al Davis used to say. He's got to go down. He has to experience this. He has to be abused. He has to endure this deep pain and darkness and rejection. And the truth is, this is really just a precursor of what is to come. Think about it. There, there's a spiral effect that's in play here. You know, Jesus had already been rejected by the religious leaders. I mean, that was kind of a done deal, two and a half minutes appearing into the scene. He was rejected by a disciple when Judas stands and kisses him. He would soon be rejected by one of his inner circle, Peter. And this unbelievable scene that Luke records for us where Peter denies him and across the courtyard they lock eyes. Can you not see that play in your mind? Have you ever been caught in a lie? Oh. And he would soon be abandoned by the rest of the disciples while he hung on the cross. But all of that is a shadow compared to the rejection that he would soon experience when his heavenly father doesn't, 
doesn't turn his back on him, but he turns towards him with the fullness of his wrath upon sin. There is a spiraling effect here. Jesus has got to go down, and he's got to go down hard. While this scene depicts the chaos and the confusion of that night, it also, it also depicts the gospel. Let's pause here for a minute. Can you feel the injustice? Can you, I mean, I, can you feel it in your imagination, what it must be like? One of Jesus' disciples certainly did. He, he struck out in anger only to be rebuked by Jesus. In fact, in 1602, Michelangelo um, Caravaggio tried to capture this scene. Um, it's, on the, it's on the projector behind us. It's called The Taking of Christ. And I've stared at this picture all week. On the far left, you've got St. John fleeing from the moment, only to be caught by his coat by one of the officers. Next to him, you have Jesus being kissed by Judas. There are three other soldiers. They're hard to make out. And then there's one young man on the far right holding a lantern. This is very instructive. It's a very instructive image. Caravaggio is trying to tell us something about what's happening this night. He knew something that we need to understand. We are in this picture. We're in this picture. The young man on the right holding the lantern is believed to be St. Peter, but here's what's curious about that. It's actually a self-portrait of the artist. Caravaggio, when he painted this, he painted himself as Peter. Because he knew he was guilty. He knew he was guilty and he, he wasn't sure what to do with that, so he places himself in the picture. Now, I don't want to go all art history 101 on you, but here's what's, here's what's curious. If, you, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, here's a few things to keep in mind if you go to a gallery. Pay attention to a few things. Pay attention to the source of where the light is in the picture. Pay attention to what the people's hands are doing in the picture. And, and pay attention to what is the focal point, and usually it's in the center image. And what's in the center of this picture? It's very curious. It's, it's the arm of, of the soldier. And unlike anything else in the image, it's sterling and bright. It's reflective. Caravaggio is holding it up as a mirror to the audience, saying, find yourself here. He literally wants us to see ourselves in this image. And that's where, that's where things begin to get a little tense. 
It's one thing to be on the outside looking in and looking at what Jesus is doing and seeing the way he intentionally chooses to go to a place of pain and darkness and despair. And it's an entirely different thing to realize that you have ownership in this. See, while this may feel like injustice, it's really not injustice. It's really not injustice. See, what would be injustice is if God told Jesus, look, Drew is a screw-up. Tim is a broken person, and you're going to die for them. That would be injustice. Why should one person unnecessarily suffer for another if it's not their choice? That's not what happened. Jesus wasn't told by the Father. He had to. Jesus willingly suffered. He willingly died to take your place, to take my place. That's what happened. He willingly endured. See, I am the lawbreaker, not him. I am the guilty person, not him. But because he chose me, he willingly took my place, and he willingly took yours. Jesus unjustly suffered so that you could be unjustly blessed. That's the great exchange. To say it probably more theologically accurate, Jesus suffered undeservedly so that you could be blessed undeservedly. Isn't that crazy? that someone would do such a thing for you, for me. And really, that's, the, that's this final piece. That's, that's this, ple- this place where we see the love that Christ has for his people. So just by way of closing, let me, let me share with you, I think, two things that are very instructive about this passage and about what Jesus is doing. Two powerful lessons And the first is this. Jesus' willingness to endure suffering unto death that he did not deserve demonstrates just how broken we are as a people. Think about it. Jesus' willingness to suffer unjustly gives us a hint as to just how broken we are. See, the punishment has to fit the crime. You, you, don't, you don't mete out the death penalty for someone caught shoplifting. But for certain offenses in our society, we have deemed them so heinous, so monstrous, that the only remedy is to take a life. And what Jesus is demonstrating by his willingness to give his own death is he is saying to us, you are so broken, you are so screwed up, you are so stained by sin, that the only remedy, the only remedy is the sinless sacrifice of the Son of God. That's the only thing that can take it out. 
it paints for us a hideous picture of how deeply flawed we are as people, despite the mask that we so desperately want to wear. In this room are people who work with me every day from 8 in the morning to 5 at night. And then there are also in this room people who live with me from 5 at night till 8 in the morning. I am surrounded. I cannot hide. It is a challenging thing to stand here and preach knowing how utterly screwed up I am as a person. I say stupid stuff all the time. I cannot hide. I cannot run. I am exposed. The first thing that Jesus' sacrifice shows us is how broken and how monstrous our sin is, that the only remedy is for the heavenly Father who is holy and righteous and cannot be found in the presence of sin to mete out that pain onto his beloved so that he would not have to mete it out on you. That's the first thing. And friends, if I, if I ended there, we would be left a crushed people. But that's not the end of the story. Because the second thing that Jesus' sacrifice shows us, if he is willing to endure this type of suffering that he did not deserve, it also demonstrates how deeply loved we are. It demonstrates how deeply loved we are. You know why? Because he did it. He is not a dying Savior. He is a doing Savior. He had full knowledge of what to experience, and he went to the cross because he knew that the only remedy for your sin was his sacrifice. He did it. If that does not communicate how deeply loved how deeply cherished, how deeply favored you are by the king, then I don't know what will. He has loved you with an everlasting love, a love that spared no expense to win you back to himself. And so how do we respond? Well, I think there's probably a thousand ways, but let me give you two. Christian, follower of Christ, if at some point you have trusted him, whatever that looked like in your faith tradition, if you've walked the aisle and raised a hand and signed a card and met with a counselor and whatever, I don't, you know, (laughs) pick one. Whatever it looked like for you, do you understand that you're loved, that he has sought you and he has found you and he is now your father, your savior, your champion, your friend? That's who he is for you. And so when Drew comes up in just a minute and he pronounces the benediction upon you, I want you to let those words wash over you and fill your heart with joy. Because these words and these things that I'm saying are true of you. And if you're in this room and you're not yet a Christian, I want to say this with all the gentleness and love that I can muster. What are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing? Look at this. 
Look at what he has done. Why? For you. Christus pro novus. Christ for you. What are you doing? You know, look, I'm not your pastor. I don't know your story. Most of you probably didn't even know my name (laughs) before I stood here. And that's okay. Because I can stand here with full confidence and assurance and tell you that he has loved you and he will accept you and that starting a relationship, a relationship with him is not weird or hard or scary. It, it essentially can start like this. Find someone you know. Maybe it's Drew. Maybe it's Brandon. Maybe it's David, Jonathan. You can come talk to me. Find someone you know who believes these things and say this. I think I want to tell you my story. I don't really know. I'm kind of nervous and scared, and I don't really understand what is happening, but I think I want to tell you my story, and I promise you they will listen. I I will. I promise you they will listen, and they will help you understand what it's like to be adopted into the family. the truth is the only satisfaction for your heart's deepest cravings can be found in him. That's it. That's it. This table is a visual representation of what Jesus has done for you. How he has allowed himself to be broken like our pastor will stand in just a moment and tear the loaves in two. And he has allowed himself to be poured out like wine into that cup. These things he has done for you. To Christ be the glory. Father, help us. Help us to know these things. Help us to believe these things. Help us to trust these things. Our honest confession, Lord, is that it is deep water and we are over our head. We struggle and we wrestle with the fear and pain that rejection sweeps in and we are confounded by the mystery that you willingly walk into it. Oh Lord, help us. Help us to see you as holy. Help us to know you. Thank you for the work that you're accomplishing on our behalf. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. God, thanks for preaching to us this morning. Thank you for reminding us of the truth of the gospel. Uh, and it's the, these words. I love the line in that song we just sang, that, that love can make you whole. It's the love of God that is the thing that can make you whole. And so yet again, I get to raise my hands over you and remind you of, of the truth, of the outworking of all that he has done. And that is that the Father now looks upon you and smiles upon you. We live under his smile. Uh, and we live in the promise of his blessing and presence in our lives, no matter where it is that he sends us. And so receive these words of the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.